0: Episode 54 of Ice Coffee, Ross Sea Party Part 2. Hey, Ice Coffee listeners, what's cooler than being cool? Oh, I forgot. This is a one-way deal. Anyway, the answer is ice cold, which is a neat segue back into the action out on the barrier. At 82 degrees south, Joyce... Wilde and Richards, tried to convince McIntosh to take his party north, but the skipper resolved to carry on, the split leadership again preventing clear orders and denting the chances of survival for all involved, the perilous physical state of McIntosh and Spencer Smith endangering the lives of everyone from this point onward. The 82 degree south depot lightened the load enough that MacIntosh's will carried the argument, and the six men carried on south. The second of the two Primus stoves scavenged from the Cape Evans dump, suddenly making all contemplation of splitting the party moot. This Primus, too, was burning through at the burner. They couldn't separate now, even if McIntosh accepted that he and Spencer Smith were more of a hindrance than a help. In an odd footnote to McIntosh's dedication to Shackleton's ambitions and orders, he asked Dick Richards to sign a contract limiting what he might publish on returning to civilization. This expedition formality having been missed in Sydney, Mac deigned it sufficiently important that he spent some time writing out the contract from memory. Dick Richards signed it, fully alert to the innocuous nature of the situation. This nod to financial probity on the behalf of a man who left them to fend for themselves both financially and organizationally at the end of a long line of contingent arrangements to get him home, and at the edge of what's physically humanly possible, and passing the furthest south made by Scott, Shackleton and Wilson in 1903. Thirty miles short of their final destination, Spencer Smith fell in his tracks, unable to carry on. Joyce wanted McIntosh to stay with the Padre while the four men still able to haul carried on but McIntosh's stubbornness wouldn't let him rest while the Beardmore Depot, perceived as his personal responsibility, remained unlaid. Spencer Smith was laid up in a tent with enough food and fuel to last five weeks. His diary entries from this period are a depressing parade of recounted dreams and references to scripture as the seconds ticked by, and his time in that tent make my month in traction in a hospital appear a frenetic whirlwind of social interactions and culinary excitement by comparison. The man was barely alive, and his stoicism in the face of his condition and his prospects speaks to an iron will rarely seen in my circles. On the 26th of January, 1916, the Ross Sea Party fulfilled their duty to lay Shackleton's depot where the Beardmore meets the barrier at the foot of Mount Hope. Compared to the vistas available during their weeks of sledging, the final days heading south provided a visual feast. The Beardmore itself rose before them, and their faith that the Bosque could cross the continent, the reason for their toil, caused Dick Richards to spend some time with the binoculars, trying to discern if a shape in the distance might be the newly developed dome tent Shackleton intended using on the traverse. It turned out to be a boulder caught up by the river of ice. Regardless, the possibility that they might be joined by the Traverse Party at any moment remained palpable in all minds. That we know, with hindsight, that their anticipation lay a long way from the reality doesn't diminish that these men looked on the outcome of their efforts with justified satisfaction. The depot laid, the men slept, though the glacier regularly shocked them awake with its cacophony of rumbling and ground-shaking concussions. Although plagued by snow blindness to the point he sometimes had to march with his head bandaged, Joyce found the turnaround reason to cheer his comrades along, but his diary spoke of his misgivings in a literary vein already well known to those who've been paying attention to British standard operating procedures in the Ross Quadrant. Now for the long haul back to Hut Point. The dogs are our only hope. Our lives depend on them. On the 29th, The five men reached Spencer Smith's tent, finding the man overwhelmed with joy to see them again, but in a worse physical state than before. He couldn't walk. He couldn't stand. His limbs bruised black and dark blue, his gums swollen. The sledge, lighter by the weight of a depot's worth of food, gained weight once more as they loaded the padre aboard in his sleeping bag, shedding its hairs and frozen into shape by his long weight in one spot. The going came hard, and McIntosh, also showing signs of the dread vitamin deficiency, suggested sledging at night on the harder surfaces, but Joyce, eager to maintain a constant routine for both men and dogs, rejected the idea. Ernie Wilde tended to Spencer Smith's needs with patience and stoicism, but day by day his health deteriorated for want of the ascorbic acid their diet couldn't provide. 19 Bloody Sixteen They were still struggling with scurvy. I wonder what future generations will struggle to comprehend about our current state. 2017, and they still didn't know about Zyngomax. They reached the 82 degrees south depot after five days' hard yards, at which they ditched one sledge, carrying all their kit, food, and Spencer Smith on one sledge at a cost to the time spent packing, but to the benefit of more hours in harness with all men and dogs pulling in concert. Worsening weather meant it took a further two weeks to cover the two degrees to the 80th parallel, and the delays led Joyce to subtract an extra four days of supplies from the depot, leaving four weeks' worth for Shackleton's party, which you and I know never arrived. Hayward's health waned at this point, his limbs swelling in the first signs of the scurvy. Those still pulling took to tying bamboo staves to the backs of their legs to prevent the vitamin deficiency cramping their leg muscles into a crouching position. Painful to fight, and all but useless for progress. Joyce noted the sledging conditions as the worst encountered in his eight summers in Antarctica, and he marvelled that Spencer Smith could endure his freezing nightmare journey riding the sledge in his painfully ill state. Mackintosh too weak to make any pretense at leadership, still held his men's respect. While Joyce and Richards now made all the decisions together, the resolve that drove McIntosh south to fulfil his responsibility to Shackleton, and the iron will he demonstrated in walking so as not to diminish the Padres' chances by riding the sledge with him, cemented him in the high regard of those in his company. Stranger paradoxes have cropped up in the narrative to date, but in spite of his shortcomings, Aeneas Mackintosh's legend looms large in my life for making the best of a bad situation handed him. On the 17th of February, 10 miles from the Minna Bluff depot, a blizzard hit the team equivalent to that which ended Scott's life. Joyce and Wild, the most able-bodied men remaining, took turns digging the dogs free of the accumulating snow at intervals determined not to lose them in the manner they lost some of their best pullers the previous sledging season, the effort requiring two hours of digging in the wind, with the continuous threat of frostbites to any exposed skin. When the tent canvas tore, allowing drift snow inside and threatening to lead to the whole tent blowing apart, Joyce and Richards took turns outside, passing the sailmaker's needle back and forth through the calico food bag they used as a patch costing more time and testing their physical limits in the cold wind. Ernie Wilde, usually laconic, became boisterous in his attempts to chivvy Spencer Smith along, starting arguments with the pastor fit to make no illusions proud, but the spikes in interest and coherent dialogue that his efforts provoked became shorter and less regular as the preacher man fell into sustained delirium. With the blizzard still maintaining 80 knot winds, they ran out of kerosene. Dick Richards applied himself to fashioning a spirit stove from a tin mug and odds and ends, and managed to make something able to burn metho sufficiently well that they wouldn't dehydrate. And given enough time, it could even heat up the quarter pint of hoosh, constituting their short daily ration. But the invention required constant attention and took a long time to achieve anything. On the 22nd of February, with no sign of the blizzard easing, Joyce, Richards and Hayward agreed to eat the last of their pemmican and to make a dash the following morning, regardless of conditions. McIntosh, in the other tent, tried to demur, but Joyce admonished that to fail to move on in the morning would resign them to Scott's fate. There is no choice. It is imperative we leave this camp or we will all go under. We are on our last legs and weakening rapidly. Whatever the cost, we are going. Our food lies ahead, and death stalks us from behind. The week spent idle sapped their strength, and it took all morning, working against the relentless blizzard, to break camp and pack the sledge, Spencer Smith losing consciousness from the pain induced by his companions lifting him into position. Steering by compass, Richards was close at hand when Mackintosh collapsed his spirit sapped by scurvy and crying, I'm done for, over and over, and requesting the team leave him where he fell. Richards tried tough love. Don't be a bloody fool, Mac. We'll get you a hot drink and then we'll go on again. The captain responded that they should wrap him in a snow sheet and carry on without him. Leonard Bickle interviewed Richards long after the event for his book, The Last Antarctic Heroes, and his account of Richard's recounting of these moments remains with me. The anguish of that time was still vivid in the mind of Dick Richards more than 60 years later, when the harrowing situation could still bring tears to his eyes. His recollection was of lifting the wasted body of the captain and comforting him, while the others threw up the tent against the force of the snow-filled wind. No argument, Mac. We'll put you in the tent and make you comfortable, and then we'll go to the depot and bring back food and fuel. You'll be right. Joyce and Richards opted to carry on to the depot with Hayward, leaving Wilde to look after the invalids in their tent. With no idea if they could find the depot, and doubly uncertain they could find the invalid camp again if they could find the food cache, the trio carried forward, their sledge empty and their dogs running on same. The blizzard continued. Setting up camp, Joyce needed a frostbitten foot thawed. The men cooked up their cup of tea and ate their half biscuit, but there was nothing for the dogs. Even melting water on the primitive cooker proved difficult, the temperature dropping so low that the methylated spirits needed coaxing into flame with one match after another. This carried on for three days, the dogs losing condition and spirit, led forward, it seems, by Oscar's will alone, and the men, scraping the sides of the canvas food tank with their spoons, for what little seal blubber and pemmican adhered there. Richards noted that at times of crisis, with the sledge bogged down in soft snow, that massive Oscar would lower his great head and pull as he never did when things were going well. This additional effort, dredged from somewhere other than where the dog food goes, would be just enough to get the sledge moving at which Oscar would nip at the flanks and heels of his fellow dogs to urge them into supporting the desperate attempt to move ahead. Dogs aren't stupid, and these ones knew in which direction future feeds lay. Having lost the trail of guiding cans and discarded the sledge meter, navigation was more a case of luck than applied maritime talent, and as the compass required bare handling, only the briefest bearings could be applied to the ragged, increasingly uncertain caravan, striving north, hoping for a couple of contingencies to fall their way in the face of the stacked deck that gave them their dud hand. Each heading offered an angle against the wind which the sledges would use to hold their course for as much as half an hour, adding another layer of navigational uncertainty, as this method assumed a constant wind direction, which was far from guaranteed, but it was a method at least. The tent split and Joyce and Richards again took turns squatting outside to pass the sailmaker's needle back to the slightly more comfortable repairer inside, eventually making enough of a new seam to keep them safe. Hayward, chosen as an expedition member for his oxen strength and stoic approach to life in Canada's far north, lost heart to his scurvy and exhaustion, beginning to entreat his comrades to sacrifice one of the dogs to the pot. Knowing the dogs offered their only hope of reaching the depot, let alone retracing their steps to collect the depot companions, Joyce and Richards managed to dissuade Hayward from setting fire to the lifeboat just yet. Joyce bucking everyone's spirits by reciting some stoic poetry from his favourite wordsmith, Robert Service. After a night of violent convulsions, their failing bodies attempting to jerk warming blood about where a well-fed human can rely on their cardiovascular system, which afforded the trio no sleep, the weather cleared. Richards, gazing south at the clearing skies, cautioned against racing to get further north, as the navigational uncertainty imposed by their operating in low visibility and without a sledge meter for so long, meant they might have already overshot the depot, but with no alternative other than sitting on their duffs and dying, Scott style, they harnessed up and got moving, hoping they would pick up a marker can ere long. With no food to heat and no fuel to melt water, breaking camp was simply a matter of dropping and packing the tent. The hungry thirsty party lumbered forward a few steps at a time for an hour, at which point the dogs, silent wraiths since departing the tent of invalids, gave up some barking. A marker flag showed on the horizon. Finally, one of the contingencies they needed to fall their way did so. They hadn't overshot the depot, and they weren't so far off track that further progress north would cheat them of their food. Hayward, however, gave out at this moment of relief, collapsing against the sledge, unable to continue. Joyce, Richards and the dogs struggled for two hours to haul what a healthy team might cover in 15 minutes, and spent a further hour getting their tent erected. Each man surprised and alarmed at how weak they were become and alert to the fact that had they not reached the depot exactly when they did, none of them could have even hoped to make it off the barrier. A note on the can told how Cope, Gaze and Jack made it that far with the faulty primer stove, but the depot held no news regarding the Aurora. With Hayward ensconced in the tent, Richards and Joyce dug down to the food cache. The dogs' reaction to their first feed of the newly uncovered dog pemmican and biscuits surprised the men. The animals taking their time, where gorging might have led to regurgitation. A valuable example for the starving men. Sunday the 27th of February, the day that Joyce promised Ernie Wilde he would return with supplies. The northern trio spent pinned down by a hurricane force blizzard, and while the emotional toll this took on the men to the south is difficult to calculate, It was a boon to those recuperating in preparation for the 12-mile sledge back to their invalid companions. Joyce wrote that he could feel strength returning as each subsequent meal digested and flooded his system with the warmth imparted by the Primus. Preparing to run the sledge south again, Joyce found the dogs would not start, snapping at each other and refusing to pull. He worked out that if he turned the sledge to face north, he could encourage the dogs to make a start, and then curve back south on their path. But the animals wouldn't budge if the team tried to make a start while facing the way they'd most recently come. Smart animals. Not so smart that they'd noticed the sun curving around their horizon as they went through this sleight of turn. But I know a lot of humans that don't pay much heed to that sort of thing too. On the evening of the 28th of February... Unsure of the distance yet to cover and concerned at the possibility of overshooting the Invalid's tent, the trio made camp to wait out a blizzard. On the 29th of February, 1916 being a leap year, Richard spotted the smudge on the horizon indicating man-made objects. Eleven days after heading north for the depot, the trio returned to their depoted comrades apprehensive about what they might find inside the lonely tent. What they found was Ernie Wilde still hard at work keeping spirits up, Spencer Smith still incapacitated, and McIntosh able to get to his feet, but increasingly despondent about their prospects, his farewell letter written as the food ran out. Wilde found enough spark in himself, after eating nothing for six days, to harness up, and help his northern saviours cover the final yards to camp, a gesture that brought tears to the eyes of the sledges. Frank Wild gets a lot of praise for his efforts in Antarctica, and justifiably so, but his brother Ernest was clearly made of the same stern stuff. Remember Ernest whenever the better-known Frank comes to mind or receives mention. Wild set about cooking up some of the newly arrived food, with some of the newly arrived fuel, the pressurised blue flame of the primus filling the tent with the sweet smell of burning kerosene, and warmth where previously the comparatively weak improvised metho stove barely melted snow and left the tent damp but little warmer for its flame. Again, a slow introduction to food prevented wasteful vomiting. I hope never to get so malnourished that the very act of eating promotes drastic gastric losses. They tied the two sledges in tandem, one for each invalid. McIntosh tried to walk, but his advanced scurvy forced his legs into a squat, and his attempts at ambulation, aided by ski stocks, was too painful to keep up. He accepted his place on the sledge behind that of the Padre. All that they left behind at the camp was the depressingly human-shaped depression Spencer Smith melted into the barrier surface during his 12 days lying in place. The reunion among men coincided with foul weather but the blizzard, blowing from the south, gave some aid to progress filling the ad hoc sledge sail and helping them make a start where the four weak men and four weak dogs likely couldn't have gotten moving without the assist. Hayward began showing signs of his progressing scurvy hanging off the sledges more often than he provided traction for them alarming Joyce who recognised that another body acting as ballast rather than brawn would shave the available margins below the survival horizon. He steered the party well clear of Minna Bluff to avoid the gravasses it causes in the barrier. A fall-related injury to any of them would mean death to all of them, so the shortcut offered by a traverse cutting close to the Bluff shore wasn't worth the associated risk. The site of the Bluff, with its promise of cached food, and then the peak of Mount Erebus, showing above the horizon, offered goals to work toward, and welcome variety in a landscape that for too long comprised nothing but the flat barrier along the entire horizon. Through all this, Spencer Smith managed to smile and offer encouragement when his delirium opened up enough to allow some lucidity. Macintosh twice fell off his sledge, making no sound, Given that he was lashed on before the party headed off each morning, I suspect he was deliberately seeking to lighten the load for his companions, but on each occasion, someone noticed his absence and retrieved him. Less likely a deliberate attempt to make a sacrifice to the barrier snows, the tent poles fell off, also making no sound. The absence was only noticed when the sledges arrived at the Minnebluff depot once more. They had enough food to sort out their calorific needs, if not their vitamin deficiencies, and fuel enough to run the Primus the entire time they camped, but without a tent, the whole crew would die the death. Anxiously, they scanned the trail with binoculars from the highest available vantage point, atop the bulkier of the two sledge loads. A dark smudge showed in their tracks, and Richard slogged the miles back to confirm they were the missing poles, and fetched them. Another shave close to the margins... I realise that many listeners will already know this story and how it ends, and even those who have never heard of these people or events will be feeling that I'm gilding the lily, drawing out their travails as much as I have. But I want the episode representing the Ross Sea Party to recognise their efforts by stressing the monotony of their day-to-day lives, and the regularity with which these men barely scraped by, dodging bullets all day, every day of the northward journey across the barrier. Likely, you're warm and well-fed as you listen to this, as I was when I wrote up my notes and recorded it, so please bear with me while I give those who spent far too long being cold and hungry their rightful attention. Again, the depot held no word from the Cape Evans team regarding the Aurora. Uncertainty remained as to exactly what they could expect if their efforts proved successful in getting them off the barrier, but one thing was certain. At this late stage in the season, they were looking at a second winter in Antarctica. Of the sledging at this point in the journey, Dick Richards wrote, "Trudging along, hour after hour, day after day, with a canvas harness over the shoulders and around the waist, is a fantastic experience. There was no conversation on the trail. Each step forward was a little advance over the last. All our energies were needed for the job in hand. The silence was profound, the soft crunch of feet in the snow, the faint swish of the sledge-runners, serving only to emphasise that silence. The hours of a day's march seemed endless. I do not know what went on in the minds of my companions while on the march over these months. In my case, I'd perform long, useless computations of one sort or another in my head. An automatic reaction to the monotony that was forced upon us. An anodyne to the weariness of the body. We seldom thought about the outside world. We had heard nothing of it since December 1914. We had left all that behind. The outside seemed unreal. The only reality we had was what we saw about us. Hayward's scurvy symptoms grew worse his swollen feet barely able to stand the pressure placed on them by the mere act of standing. The sleeping bags, ice-rhymed and quickly losing what reindeer hair remained, couldn't keep the increasingly lean bodies placed inside them warm, and violent spasms once more made sleep more a matter of lying down in a state of nightmarish delirium through the darker part of each 24 hours stint than a restful break from consciousness. By early March, Hayward was spent... He and McIntosh did what they could to ease the burden on their companions, hobbling forward along the trail while the sledges were got ready, hoping to ease the load for the three men still able to haul, but the effort, while welcome and heartening, didn't make a huge difference in the energy budget. Spencer Smith could be heard reciting prayers and reliving conversations from long ago in his sleeping bag. By now bleeding from the bowels, the man was sinking fast. Opium drawn from the first aid kit helped ease his pain to some extent, but did little for his coherence, and his decline offered a stark vision of the future lying in wait for Mac and Hayward. Forty miles out from Hut Point, with the days growing short, the cold growing more intense, and their distances decreasing day by day, Joyce, Wilde and Richards came up with a last ditch plan to lighten the sledge enough to allow them a shot at reaching safety they would, once more, have to depot people on the barrier. Mackintosh took the lonely role of cargo in storage with three weeks worth of food. Joyce, Richards and Wilde, now showing signs of scurvy themselves, pushed on with Spencer Smith and Hayward riding the sledges, hoping to cure the party with the seal meat available on Ross Island and that anyone left at the Discovery Hut might come south with them once more to collect the captain. This arrangement allowed better daily mileage, but Spencer Smith's colonic bleeding increased to a steady, albeit slow, flow, and his body was increasingly racked with agonising spasms. On March the 9th, two months after his collapse, two months without a word of complaint, the young clergyman fell into a coma one night and never reawakened. His companions buried him on the barrier, carrying his diary and personal effects to pass on to his next of kin. The party pushed on to Cape Armitage, arriving at this Ross Island shore around midnight and in blowing snow, their hearts sinking at what they saw as open water beyond the headland. After a miserable night in the almost hairless sleeping bags, contemplating the two-mile backtrack and uphill scramble that would allow them to pass behind Observation Hill and on to the Hut Point hut, they rose to see, in clearer conditions and morning light, that the ice was in and sledgeable, the impression of open water being a function of an open lead viewed through darkness and blown snow. Dick Richards recounted his reaction to seeing Waddell seals at a tide crack in the final few metres before reaching the hut. Stopped in his tracks... Staring at the animals lying oblivious to their imminent doom, he felt a primal urge that caught him entirely by surprise in its intensity and its object. I had the strongest desire to rush to one of those animals and cut its throat and drink the blood that I knew would hose from its neck. Extraordinary. I know someone who's eaten freshly killed seal and drunk the still hot blood. The experience she recounts makes it sound like that's exactly what Richards needed at that scurvy-addled moment, and his body knew it. Had the sledges encountered the animals while further from the hut, he felt certain he would have feasted in the manner his instincts urged. Piles of drift snow filled the hut after the long months empty of human occupants, requiring the hobbled hayward be passed in through the window, an operation taking some time and again demonstrating the overall weakness among the party. Wilde and Richards immediately headed out to kill two seals, while Joyce got the blubber stove going. Once more, they started in with spare portions for both men and dogs, their starvation-adjusted stomachs, barely able to hold down such rich fare as fresh seal meat and some rehydrated vegetables, scrounged from the darkened recesses of the hut. With his legs entirely black with the bruises of scurvy-mediated edema, his pupils dilated and his conscious state borderline catatonic, no one felt confident Hayward could recover, but the meat and heat worked wonders on the other three men. While still weak after their 193 days on the barrier, they at least felt their changed circumstances doing them some good, the solid roof relieving the constant anxiety the worn-out flapping canvas tent caused at each camp and the fresh meat reversing their own scorbatic symptoms. Joyce, shortly before taking the sleeping bags outside for drying during a brief sunny spell, weighed the depilated reindeer skins and found them loaded down by three times their own weight in ice, formed of exhaled air and stove exhaust. In just two full days at the hut, Wilde, Richards and Joyce laid in a stock of seal meat and blubber sufficient to keep Hayward going in their absence and to carry the trio south to collect Macintosh, mended their ragged tent and overhauled their sledging gear. On the 14th of March, they headed back onto the barrier. Hayward, regaining his senses as the fresh meat worked its vitamin-loaded wonders, grew despondent at the prospect of being left on his own at the hut, but he was far too weak to be anything other than a hindrance on the trail. Joyce might rather not have returned to the outdoor life, but he looked south with determination and confidence. McIntosh would reach the hut alive, or Joyce would break himself on the rock of the attempt. Better fed and with plenty of food in tow, the dogs gave no trouble starting south on the 14th of March. The three men variously recounted this stage of their experience in terms of comradeship born of extreme trial. They knew they were on the home stretch. They knew each other like few people know their fellow humans, accepting each other's faults as readily as they recognised and applauded their strengths. Wilde didn't live through the Great War, but Joyce and Richards felt a great sense of fealty to their sledging companions long after the events that forged the bonds. Three days out from Hut Point, they passed Spencer Smith's grave in the ice. A quarter day's march on from there, they sighted the tent from atop a marker can, and McIntosh stood outside it, gazing north, supporting himself on ski stocks. The relief of the relieving trio felt palpable. Nine days alone on the barrier with no guarantee your companion survived would tax the mental mettle of anyone, but for someone as ill as Mackintosh, who already pushed himself to the brink of mental and physical dissolution to fulfil his obligations to Shackleton, the debilitated waiting must have been hellish. Certainly, he didn't seem able to process the news of Spencer Smith's death, or that the Aurora wasn't waiting for them in McMurdo Sound. He managed to proclaim the day of his relief as the greatest of his life, and one that he would commemorate until his death, but the blood on the seat of his trousers spoke to his physical decline, bleeding from the bowels, as occurred in Spencer Smith during the final stages of his physical breakdown and death they made Macintosh a meal of minced seal meat and pemmican, collapsed the tent and got heading north again as quickly as possible, covering 20 miles in their first full day on the trail, a record for sledging operations during their expedition. They reached the hut once more on the 18th of March. Hayward, still badly hobbled by scurvy, brightened at their arrival. Barely able to stand, his scurvy stiffened leg muscles bending his knees to a fixed and macabre forty five degree angle, MacIntosh solemnly shook each man by the hand and thanked them both for their efforts in fulfilling their obligation to the transcontinental party and for saving his life. They'd sledged one thousand six hundred nautical miles together, lost one of their number to scurvy, and all experienced their own battle with the horrors of the disease to lay the vital depot Shackleton would need to finish his crossing of the continent, and they'd done it all using second-hand and homemade gear, and food caught or caged from the local seal populations and huts, respectively. With the ice between Hutt Point and Cape Evans yet to form, Joyce estimated they would need to stay at the southernmost of the Ross Island structures for at least four months. In spite of Shackleton's assertions in South, The supply of dried vegetables at the hut was limited and the diet available to the gradually recuperating men comprised seal meat and 1902 vintage cod liver oil impregnated dog biscuits. While Mackintosh and Hayward recovered from scurvy using makeshift crutches to help them get around and gradually regaining their mobility and rebuilding their strength, the austral winter took hold of the region. Blizzards became increasingly frequent, violent and long-lasting one spanning two full weeks between mid-April and early May. The blubber and meat stock dropped worryingly low during this period, and Ernie Wild and Dick Richards took every good or mediocre weather window to take the dogs sledging over the sea ice to hunt more seals. With the sledge light and the dogs coming back to strength, these hunting forays extended for as much as 30 nautical miles in a day, though usually the limits of the sea ice and the circuitous route followed in the search for seals, never saw them more than five or six miles from the hut. At least 30 seals, Waddell's but-for-one leopard seal, went through the increasingly hungry blubber stove to keep the hut above freezing. In the falling temperatures, the kill became an opportunity to warm their hands clear of the frostbite limit, the men thrusting them into the steaming carcass, and then a race against the cold to flens and butcher the animal the sledge receiving the blubber flongs which then formed a bed for that meat not immediately bunkered inside the dogs. A lot of otherwise usable flesh remained on the skeleton by the time the cold made it impossible to process further and the sledges moved off. In mid-April, Joyce began reconnoitering the sea ice. Skirting the shore so as to never be far from safety, he found the sea ice firm and figured that after another few days of still, cold conditions... It would prove strong enough for sledging, but a week-long blizzard put paid to this idea, stripping the sea ice away to within almost a half mile of the hut. On the 8th of May, Captain Mackintosh, the fresh meat having relieved his scurvy symptoms in the startlingly fast manner recounted in so many tales of survival against the vitamin deficiency, announced that he and Hayward were heading for Cape Evans. The blunt announcement met incredulous silence from the three men who'd near-killed themselves saving their lives. Wilde headed outside and scanned the horizon to the south, returning to the stove-side to warn of the blizzard the dark skies over Minna Bluff presaged. A seaman questioning the wisdom of an officer can pose a fraught maritime dilemma, but I'm surprised that after what the two men went through together, Wilde still upheld the formality The situation would require, in less stressful circumstances. Now look here, sir, you can call me cautious, but I wouldn't go to Cape Evans today. Not for all the tea in China. A politely couched suggestion, where anyone I'd come so close to death for could expect a more blunt attempt at coercing a better decision. Context is key, I guess. Different times, different cultural milieu. McIntosh brushed Wilde's concerns aside with the excuse that his responsibility lay in ascertaining the condition of the four men in his charge at the more northerly hut. The divided leadership set in play by Shackleton's unclear and contradictory instructions, and reinforced by Joyce's borderline mutinous stand taken during barrier operations on the way south, meant Joyce, Wilde and Richards wouldn't be ordered to join the trek, and Mackintosh wisely didn't try that line, or at least... No account records him trying it. Mac promised to stay close to the shoreline and to head for solid ground at any sign of conditions turning against them, but figured that with no sledge they would cover the miles in a few hours. Having dodged so many bullets, worked so hard on the barrier and then again in the dark hunting forays from the hut, having nursed two deathly sick men back to health, the trio remaining at hut point felt a mix of concern and resentment as they watched the rejuvenated pair head off with only their personal possessions and a bag of seal meat. We'd worked our guts out to get them into the safety of the hut. So there was some bitterness in seeing them go against advice, Richards wrote. The hut point trio climbed Vince's hill to watch them for as long as the weak winter light allowed. The blizzard hit the hut within an hour of their return from Vince's hill and blew hard for three days. When the air grew still once more, the three men followed the footsteps out onto the ice for three miles. There, the footsteps stopped at a disjunct. The sea ice had broken out, and new ice, thin and greasy, grew in the space where the footsteps were carried away. With no tent or stove, there was little chance McIntosh and Hayward could have survived the blizzard, even if they hadn't been carried out to sea. Joyce's diary entry for the day reads... The fate of those foolish people we do not know. Such is life, after dragging them back from death. Mackintosh's previous experience should have proved the warning. The Antarctic is a hard mistress. For a further eight weeks these three men hunkered around the blubber stove, the weather growing colder, the blizzards more frequent and the seals harder to hunt. When the ice grew thick enough for a crossing The weather grew too bad to contemplate one, and invariably the increasingly violent southerly storms broke some key element of the sea ice out from their proposed path back to relative civilization. In addition to the concerns over Mackintosh and Hayward, and the longer term fears held for the Aurora, the non-arrival of Shackleton gave a third tier of concern. Clearly something had gone wrong with the Weddell Sea Party, and the most obvious explanation was that the overland contingent had perished. On the 15th of July, with the sea ice apparently set firm and the moon waxing to full in a clear sky, Joyce seized on the still conditions and led the trio north. Out on the sea ice, an inopportune coincidence put the fear into them, as the light afforded them by the moon began to fade, the ice becoming inky dark under a cloudless sky. With no almanac to hand and insufficient light to read it by if one had been available, It took the men some time to realise the moon was occulting through a lunar eclipse. The light began to return as they neared Cape Evans, and the second surprise of the crossing came their way in the form of a chorus of howling and barking, receiving throaty replies from their own dogs. The barrier trio had forgotten pregnant Bitchy, left behind at Cape Evans, and her pups were nearly full grown in the ten months since the depot journey began. The four Cape Evans occupants came out to the shore, but joyous handshakes at the reunion gave way to melancholy reflection when the burning question, did Mac and Hayward make it, came to the fore. To the trio from the South, the nonplussed response in the negative dashed what slight hopes remained. For the Cape Evans foursome, the news that Spencer Smith died on the barrier and that Macintosh and Hayward left Hut Point two months earlier was new and shocking. With no news of the Aurora and no sign of the boss, the Ross Sea Party had a lot of grimness to contemplate. And it's there, with Wilde, Joyce and Richards, fed by the wondrous array of jams and flour left behind by the Nova, and asleep in warm blankets for the first time in the best part of a year, that will leave the Ross Sea Party this episode. Obviously, I need to account their not still being there, but that's a story that requires recounting of the Aurora's journeys under Stenhouse and then Davis, and that can only come into focus when events playing out concurrent to those recounted in episodes 53 and 54 are given their due attention. MacIntosh, physically one-eyed after his experiences with the Nimrod expedition, also seemed psychologically one-eyed in his approach to fulfilling his assigned task. He pushed his team and himself hard throughout the depot journeys on the Ross Ice Barrier. His loyalty to Shackleton drove him to give better service than he received, Shackleton giving him orders in conflict with those entrusted to Joyce, and neglecting the stores and equipment for the Ross Sea Party such that Mackintosh had to fend for himself, which he did, but that's not the same as saying that it was right for anyone to expect that of him. Macintosh did what he said he would do, and nearly killed himself in the effort, and then died because his desire to enjoy safety and comfort overrode his judgement. After all he survived and all that his men achieved, Mackintosh deserved a better death than the hypothermic drift out to sea that most likely comprised his demise. After the events playing out concurrently in the Weddell Sea became known to the Ross Sea survivors, that the food they depoted was never used didn't diminish the worth they perceived in their efforts they did what they set out to do. It was horrendous and people died, but they held to their task and got the job done and found merit in that in itself. The food they depoted still lies out there on the barrier somewhere, likely a bit closer to the sea than when cached and buried under snow, but still every bit as nutritious and tasty as when first prepared, that being very and not very respectively. Ernest Wilde was killed on mine-sweeping duties during the First World War. Joyce and Richards never lost their respect for their leader, praising Ernest Shackleton in spite of the shortcomings that bit them in terms of organisation and supplies. The first-hand diary accounts and interviews with Dick Richards provided the author Leonard Bickle a rare combination of first-hand personal narrative and half a century's worth of perspective on that narrative and of the several books written about the travails of Macintosh's men, I think I'd recommend The Last Antarctic Heroes, above all others. Certainly if you read his account, you'll recognise how heavily I relied on the work to inform my notes for these episodes. Macintosh's final diary, covering the depot-laying journey, went out to sea with its author. Shackleton's recounting of the Ross Sea experience in South drew on his dialogue with and quoted extensively from the diaries of The Survivors, but as Hugh Robert Mills advised held back some of the details and glossed over some problems that might reflect negatively on the reputations of the still living. Sending greetings to Kate this episode who I just realised I've known for about 10 years now and she's been sustainably awesome for that entire period. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Thank you.